Section 4 of The Encantadas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Encantadas by Herman Melville. Sketch Fourth. A Pisgah View from the Rock. That done, he leads him to the highest mount, from whence far off he unto him did show. If you seek to ascend Rock Rodondo, take the following prescription. Go three voyages round the world as a main royal man of the tallest frigate that floats. Then serve a year or two apprenticeship to the guides who conduct strangers up the peak of Tenerife, and as many more respectively to a rope dancer, an Indian juggler, and a chamois. This done, come and be rewarded by the view from our tower. How we get there, we alone know. If we sought to tell others, what the wiser were they? Suffice it that here at the summit you and I stand. Does any balloonist, does the outlooking man in the moon, take a broader view of space? Much thus, one fancies, looks the universe from Milton's celestial battlements, a boundless watery Kentucky. Here Daniel Boone would have dwelt content. Never heed for the present yonder burnt district of the Enchanted Isles. Look edgeways, as it were, past them to the south. You see nothing. But permit me to point out the direction, if not the place, of certain interesting objects in the vast sea, which, kissing this tower's base, we behold unscrolling itself towards the Antarctic Pole. We stand now ten miles from the equator. Yonder to the east, some six hundred miles, lies the continent, this rock being just about on the parallel of Quito. Observe another thing here. We are at one of three uninhabited clusters, which, at pretty nearly uniform distances from the main, sentinel, at long intervals from each other, the entire coast of South America. In a peculiar manner also, they terminate the South American character of country. Of the unnumbered Polynesian chains to the westward, not one partakes of the qualities of the Encantadas or Galapagos, the Isles of St. Felix and St. Ambrose, the Isles Juan Fernandez and Masafuero. Of the first it needs not here to speak. The second lie a little above the southern tropic, lofty, inhospitable, and uninhabitable rocks, one of which, presenting two round hummocks connected by a low reef, exactly resembles a huge double-headed shot. The last lie in the latitude of thirty-three degrees, high, wild, and cloven. Juan Fernandez is sufficiently famous without further description. Masafuero is a Spanish name, expressive of the fact that the isle so-called lies more without, that is, further off the main than its neighbor Juan. This isle, Masafuero, has a very imposing aspect at a distance of eight or ten miles. Approached in one direction, in cloudy weather, its great overhanging height and rugged contour and more especially a peculiar slope of its broad summits, give it much the air of a vast iceberg drifting in tremendous poise. Its sides are split with dark cavernous recesses, as an old cathedral with its gloomy lateral chapels. 
drawing nigh one of these gorges from sea, after a long voyage, and beholding some tatterdemalion outlaw, staff in hand, descending its steep rocks toward you, conveys a very queer emotion to a lover of the picturesque. On fishing parties from ships at various times I have chanced to visit each of these groups. The impression they give to the stranger pulling close up in his boat under their grim cliffs is that surely he must be their first discoverer, such, for the most part, is the unimpaired silence and solitude. And here, by the way, the mode in which these isles were really first lighted upon by Europeans is not unworthy of mention, especially as what is about to be said likewise applies to the original discovery of our Encantadas. Prior to the year 1563, the voyages made by Spanish ships from Peru to Chile were full of difficulty. Along this coast, the winds from the south most generally prevail, and it had been an invariable custom to keep close in with the land, from a superstitious conceit on the part of the Spaniards, that were they to lose sight of it, the eternal trade-wind would waft them into unending waters, from whence would be no return. Here, involved among tortuous capes and headlands, shoals and reefs, beating, too, against a continual head-wind, often light and sometimes for days and weeks sunk into utter calm, the provincial vessels, in many cases, suffered the extremest hardships in passages, which at the present day seem to have been incredibly protracted. There is on record in some collections of nautical disasters an account of one of these ships, which, starting on a voyage whose duration was estimated at ten days, spent four months at sea, and indeed never again entered harbor, for in the end she was cast away. Singular to tell, this craft never encountered a gale, but was the vexed sport of malicious calms and currents. Thrice out of provisions, she put back to an intermediate port, and started afresh, but only yet again to return. Frequent fogs enveloped her, so that no observation could be had of her place, and once, when all hands were joyously anticipating sight of their destination, lo, the vapors lifted and disclosed the mountains from which they had taken their first departure. In the like deceptive vapors, she at last struck upon a reef, whence ensued a long series of calamities too sad to detail. It was the famous pilot Juan Fernandez, immortalized by the island named after him, who put an end to these coasting tribulations, by boldly venturing the experiment, as de Gama did before him with respect to Europe, of standing broad out from land. Here he found the winds favorable for getting to the south, and by running westward till beyond the influences of the trades, he regained the coast without difficulty, making the passage which, though in a high degree circuitous, proved far more expeditious than the nominally direct one. Now, it was upon these new tracks, and about the year 1670 or thereabouts, that the Enchanted Isles, and the rest of the sentinel groups, as they may be called, were discovered. Though I know of no account as to whether any of them were found inhabited or no, it may be reasonably concluded that they have been immemorial solitudes. But let us return to Redondo. Southwest from our tower lies all Polynesia, hundreds of leagues away. But straight west, on the precise line of his parallel, 
no land rises till your keel is beached upon the king's mills a nice little sail of say five thousand miles having thus by such distant references with rodondo the only possible ones settled our relative place on the sea let us consider objects not quite so remote behold the grim and charred enchanted isles this nearest crater-shaped headland is part of albemarle the largest of the group being some sixty miles or more long and fifteen broad did you ever lay eye on the real genuine equator have you ever in the largest sense towed the line well that identical crater-shaped headland there all yellow lava is cut by the equator exactly as a knife cut straight through the center of a pumpkin pie if you could only see so far just to one side of that same headland across yon low dikey ground you would catch sight of the isle of narborough the loftiest land of the cluster no soil whatever one seemed clinker from top to bottom abounding in black caves like smithies its metallic shore ringing underfoot like plates of iron its central volcanoes standing grouped like a gigantic chimney-stack narborough and albemarle are neighbors after a quite curious fashion a familiar diagram will illustrate this strange neighborhood cut a channel at the above letter joint and the middle transverse limb is narborough and all the rest is albemarle volcanic narborough lies in the black jaws of albemarle like a wolf's red tongue in his open mouth if now you desire the population of albemarle i will give you in round numbers the statistics according to the most reliable estimates made upon the spot men none anteaters unknown man-haters unknown lizards five hundred thousand snakes five hundred thousand spiders ten million salamanders unknown devils do making a clean total of eleven million exclusive of an incomputable host of fiends anteaters man-haters and salamanders albemarle opens his mouth towards the setting sun his distended jaws form a great bay which narborough his tongue divides into halves one whereof is called weather bay the other lee bay while the volcanic promontories terminating his coasts are styled south head and north head i note this because these bays are famous in the annals of the sperm whale fishery the whales come here at certain seasons to calve when ships first cruised hereabouts i am told they used to blockade the entrance of lee bay when their boats going round by weather bay passed through narborough channel and so had the leviathans very neatly in a pen the day after we took fish at the base of this round tower we had a fine wind and shooting round the north headland suddenly descried a fleet of full thirty sail all beating to windward like a squadron in line a brave sight as ever man saw a most harmonious concord of rushing keels their thirty kelsons hummed like thirty harp-strings and looked as straight whilst they left their parallel traces on the sea but there proved too many hunters for the game 
the fleet broke up and went their separate ways out of sight, leaving my own ship and two trim gentlemen of London. These last, finding no luck either, likewise vanished, and Lee Bay, with all its appurtenances and without a rival, devolved to us. The way of cruising here is this. You keep hovering about the entrance of the bay, in one beat and out the next. But at times, not always, as in other parts of the group, a racehorse of a current sweeps right across its mouth. So, with all sails set, you carefully ply your tacks. How often, standing at the foremast head at sunrise, with our patient prow pointed in between these isles, did I gaze upon that land, not of cakes, but of clinkers, not of streams of sparkling water, but arrested torrents of tormented lava. As the ship runs in from the open sea, Narborough presents its side in one dark craggy mass, soaring up some five or six thousand feet, at which point it hoods itself in heavy clouds, whose lowest level fold is as clearly defined against the rocks as the snow line against the Andes. There is dire mischief going on in that upper dark. There toil the demons of fire, who at intervals irradiate the nights with a strange spectral illumination for miles and miles around, but unaccompanied by any further demonstration, or else suddenly announce themselves by terrific concussions and the full drama of a volcanic eruption. The blacker that cloud by day, the more may you look for light by night. Often whalemen have found themselves cruising nigh that burning mountain, when all aglow with a ballroom blaze. Or rather, glassworks, you may call this same vitreous isle of Narborough, with its tall chimney-stacks. Where we still stand, here on Rodondo, we cannot see all the other isles. But it is a good place from which to point out where they lie. Yonder, though, to the east-northeast, I mark a distant dusky ridge. It is Abington Isle, one of the most northerly of the group, so solitary, remote, and blank. It looks like no man's land, seen off our northern shore. I doubt whether two human beings ever touched upon that spot. So far as yon Abington Isle is concerned, Adam and his billions of posterity remain uncreated. Ranging south of Abington, and quite out of sight behind the long spine of Albemarle, lies James's Isle, so-called by the early buccaneers after the luckless Stuart, Duke of York. Observe here, by the way, that, excepting the isles particularized in comparatively recent times, and which mostly received the names of famous admirals, the Encantadas were first christened by the Spaniards but these Spanish names were generally effaced on English charts by the subsequent christenings of the buccaneers, who, in the middle of the seventeenth century, called them after English noblemen and kings. Of these loyal freebooters and the things which associate their name with the Encantadas, we shall hear anon, nay, for one little item, immediately. For between James's Isle and Albemarle lies a fantastic islet strangely known as Cowley's Enchanted Isle. But as all the group is deemed enchanted, the reason must be given for the spell within a spell involved by this particular designation. The name was bestowed by that excellent buccaneer himself on his first visit here. 
Speaking in his published voyages of this spot, he says, My fancy led me to call it Cowley's Enchanted Isle, for we having had a sight of it upon several points of the compass, it appeared always in so many different forms, sometimes like a ruined fortification, upon another point like a great city, etc. No wonder, though, that among the Encantadas all sorts of ocular deceptions and mirages should be met. That Cowley linked his name with this self-transforming and bemocking isle suggests the possibility that it conveyed to him some meditative image of himself. At least, as is not impossible, if he were any relative of the mildly thoughtful and self-upbraiding poet Cowley, who lived about his time, the conceit might seem unwarranted, for that sort of thing evinced in the naming of this isle runs in the blood, and may be seen in pirates as in poets. Still south of James's Isle lie Jervis Isle, Duncan Isle, Grossman's Isle, Brattle Isle, Woods Isle, Chatham Isle, and various lesser isles, for the most part an archipelago of aridities, without inhabitant, history, or hope of either in all time to come. But not far from these are rather notable isles, Barrington, Charles's, Norfolk, and hoods succeeding chapters will reveal some ground for their notability end of sketch fourth recording by james k white chula vista